Whenever I went somewhere, I was running. Win the crowd, and you will win your freedom. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. Welcome to the Brackish <laughs> Podcast. We are your hosts, Knock, Glenn, Cliff, Cliff Oh, Jinx. Jinx on that. And we have an audience with us today. We have a fan <laughs> of the podcast. He listened to all 2,000 episodes of the podcast that we have posted. Clayton is here today. He started us off with his uh, favorite movie quote. My name is Forrest, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Oh, thank you for being here. And why did you start listening to the Braggish Podcast? Because I know two-thirds of the hosts. <laughs> Only reason? No. Why did you keep listening to the Braggish Podcast? Because I love New Orleans. Thank you. Beautiful. So good, it sounded like we scripted it. Day. That is the neighborhood in New Orleans that we are going to talk about. And the Black Pearl gets its name, got its name in 1974. The Planning Commission renamed the neighborhood the Black Pearl. And the, the district of the Black Pearl in New Orleans is right by Audubon Park in Uptown, the Uptown area. Its uh, boundaries defined as South Carrollton Avenue and St. Charles to North, Lower Line, Perrier, and Broadway Streets to the east. Did I say it right? Perrier? Yeah, Perrier. Perrier. Yeah, and the Mississippi River to the west. So it I, looks like a weird trapezoid if you were to like go on a drone above it, but you're right there on the levee. Uh, you know, what's over there? Is that like, you know, Oak Street is near there? Uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Have, but it's below St. Charles. The Army Corps of Engineers, yeah. You know, the exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah, the very exciting things are over Train there. Train tracks. Yeah, I think Oak Street is something that people who've been to this city would maybe know about because there's Po' Boy Fest down there. And there's it. that's a great little street, Oak Street. But there's also, if you go all the way down to the end of Carrollton, you run into the end of the Green Streetcar Lines. And you've got uh, Cooter Browns. It's yes. a famous bar down there with how many, what, 60 beers on tap? Something like that. And for a while, they definitely had the largest selection of beers in the city. You've got Camellia Grill, which is very popular with locals and tourists. It's an old school, like 1950s style diner. The servers have been there for forever. The people who work there want to work there. And when you come in, you sit down. Well, for no one just comes in. You wait in the line outside. It's one of the only places that I think locals would gladly wait outside in line to get a seat at the counter where they serve you singing, dancing, interacting, making jokes, cutting up, picking on your kids for you, picking on dad for the kids. Camellia Girl is definitely worth that. So good that every time I walk in, my feet want to stay in there. The floor is so sticky. Nothing to do with the floors being (laughs) sticky. Stickiest floors in New Orleans. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, Possibly sticky because of the place that I'm going to end up talking about, New Orleans Original Daiquiris. Also in that little 
Jain. Was that the original original? It was not the original, but it opened in the first. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, yeah, All right, so maybe it was the original New Orleans original daiquiri. Instance of the original yeah. daiquiris. I've got that for you. Oh, you do? Okay, good. I do, I do. We'll take that. And uh, Cliff, you're talking about someone. Uh... I'm talking about Haley. Oh. People know her as Mahalia. I'm going to wear a diamond gown. And that Deemed the first queen of gospel. So I'll be uh, chatting about her for a little bit. Nice. I think you were hoping to be the last queen of gospel, correct? Me? Yes. Oh, there's still time. No <laughs> doubt. I gotta still got to work on the voice thing. But. Five o'clock shadow. You know, you get enough alcohol in someone and you go to a, a karaoke bar and you can think you're the last queen of gospel, but it may not sound like the last queen of gospel. But I'll try. Yeah. I've, I'm through the fifth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. I feel like I'm up for the challenge if you're ready. Let's go. <laughs> you can karaoke now. You you know, there, but there's some things now that we're back where I'm like, but do I want to put my mouth close to that thing that's, that's been passed yeah, around to every other drunk person in this building? You no, know, I love putting my <laughs> mouth right on it too. <laughs> yeah, just taste everyone's spit. <laughs> you could probably get a little buzz off of everyone's yeah. spit if you're at the right bar. Cat's meow, possibly. Gin and time. I didn't say what kind of cocktail. I just said a cocktail. In our audience today, we also have uh, Mrs. Biff and Mr. Lynn. They have to speak up if they're gonna talk, so if you hear anybody in the background, uh, you know, we've got a big audience crew with us today. This is our biggest audience to date. It is. Well, because we're allowed. Restrictions have allowed uh, us to gather. I'm nervous. I'm clenching right now. And <laughs> Scarlett. Oh, and Scarlett is here, yes. My dog Scarlett is here. You may hear her uh, bark or, uh, you know, the Biff's dog, Millie, is upstairs as well, if you can hear her in the background. She's still in quarantine. So we are gonna get started with uh, Mahalia. I oh, because okay. that's when you sing, you gotta sing well. Or would you like to go daiquiris? Let's just get straight into the alcohol. Okay. It's up to you. It, I don't care. Go, go liquor first. Go liquor. Oh. <laughs> liquor first. Right? Liquor, I barely knew her. <laughs> oh. uh, okay. so, so the original daiquiri shop. Specifically what we're talking about is the drive-through daiquiri. And I love to explain the drive-through daiquiri to people because it usually doesn't exist where they're from. And then they hear um, what constitutes a container. And there's just a lot of questions that come up. So when we're talking about the drive-through daiquiri, we have to go back in time a little bit to the 1980s. The first drive-through daiquiri stand opened in 1981 out in Lafayette. And it happened at a time where in the rest of the country, the whole concept of drive-through drinking wasn't so hot. This was when 26 states had decided to put on the books that you're not allowed to drink and drive anymore. This was also when MAD came about, the oh. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That's what I was gonna say, they are probably like forming, like getting ready, and Louisiana's like, pedal to the metal. I, that's you know, kind the of The Cajuns are just like, hey, <laughs> hey, can I get my daiquiri quicker? <laughs> Let me get out of here. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, and also you have in Louisiana in the 80s, you've got a huge oil boom. So you've got a lot of men who are down here kind of freewheeling while their wives and kids are still at, uh, at home in other states. And they're leaving the plant, picking up drinks, heading back to wherever they're staying too. And it gets hot. It gets hot in the summer, yeah. So the first drive-through daiquiri place opened in Lafayette in 1981 by a guy named Dave Irvine. He was a forestry school dropout. He was in his mid-20s. He didn't have much to do. So he opened this place that was described as a prefab metal building that more resembled a snowball stand than a bar. And the daiquiri factory was located a couple yards beyond the city limits. And that was a purposeful thing. It kind of fudged what applied to him and what didn't apply to him. And it just made it rougher in general for the law to interfere. Everybody's been in those places like, we gotta go, we gotta go outside the limits. And right when you're outside the limits, you're at the liquor store. Exactly, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. The church is in the inside of the limits. The <laughs> liquor store is on the outside. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she ever get busted for bopping? So he got away with it for a little while, but eventually things started to happen that made it difficult for the police to ignore it. People started to pull over on the side of the road because the line got so long. So you had the side of the road issue. If you've ever driven through a side of the road place in Louisiana, maybe there's no shoulder. It's that there's a bayou next to the road where your car can go right into it if you pull over too far and you don't know what you're doing. So it was that issue, there were uh, traffic accidents, there were a couple of pedestrian injuries. But did he, did he like get any investors or he just did it himself? He just did it himself. Cause I was wondering if he like tried to pitch it to somebody and they were like, no, that's stupid. And then like, just like a big, I freaking told you so dude. Story, the guy, the founder of Keynes, I mean, he, he presented that idea in his business class and the teacher told him he, he, that was a stupid idea. Mm -hmm. I don't you think know, any teacher in Louisiana would call that a stupid idea. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I'm just... Yeah. Not, now. not now. Not now. Yeah, no. definitely not now. But them daiquiri machines ain't cheap, so he had to get some money somewhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe in 1980, they, they were... Well, he he might have just been making snowballs That's true. with liquor in it. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, actually, my quote says that. So 40 motorists were ticketed for traffic offenses in one day in June of 1982 when David was celebrating the six month anniversary of his business opening. He, after these ordinances were, were put out that he couldn't sell drive-through anymore, he took it as an offense to his business. He took, he was offended by the police and he said that a snow cone with a kick gives the police a headache. He said sarcastically like, oh, a little snowball with a kick, gonna give the police mm, kind of thing. Also, I think it's hilarious that he called it a headache because anyone who has chugged a daiquiri fast enough knows you will get some brain freeze from it. Well, all you gotta do is push your tongue to the top of your mouth, wait five seconds and then go again. You'll be fine. But I do like that, the way they got him to shut it down, like, man, we got some highway issues. <laughs> it ain't about your liquor at all. It's that your liquor is so popular, it's becoming an issue on the highway. And now ordinance have to be filed for to stop you. Like I said, the city passed this ordinance that put a ban on open containers. On the same day, the daiquiri factory, old Dave's place, had a promotion in which it served champagne on the house, 
gave away t-shirts and debuted a revolutionary sealed container, a styrofoam cup that had a plastic lid held in place by a piece of scotch tape. Oh, so he was the inventor of the scotch tape? Yes, sir. David, yep. this guy keeps getting better and better. According to the Associated Press, he even sold lemonade in cups identical to those used for daiquiris and other frozen drinks to make it harder for the police to know who was drinking what. Smart man. Smart man. He uh, would sell a drink and then hand the customer a note that said, we will ask everyone to not drink on our property and to read the ordinance before you break our closed container seal. And he handed them a copy of the note, copy of the ordinance, sent them on their way, along with a t-shirt. So that's where that, the wives tale is born of like, oh, mm -hmm. if you don't pop the top, it's not an open container. Yeah, because we used to tell people that. Mm -hmm. All the time, yeah. You, yeah. If you get it through the you know, decker shop, but I would just take the lid off and then put the straw. Well, but that's what everybody does. Oh, I mean, Dude, I, I know people I know who kept like a handful of straws in the car. <laughs> These are not people that I got into the car with that very often. The lid's still on. Well, sir, your daiquiri is three-fourths gone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Refund. You sure changed me. <laughs> So ultimately it backfired, the whole ordinance. Because David was so inventive, it word of mouth spread and people actually came to the place to get this closed container daiquiri and his business was more popular than ever. And the reason all of this is still a thing has not much to do with the idea that people like this closed container with the tape around or they don't put the straw in, oh, it's cute. There were actually people who helped kind of funnel this along the way through the government. There's a gentleman named George Brown, who was the commissioner of the Beer League of Louisiana. He is well known for having kept liquor taxes low and state regulation to a minimum. He had public disputes with old Schwegman of Schwegman's Groceries about keeping liquor at a minimum point of sale. So he had a heavy hand in all of this. And he was quoted as saying in 2003, in regards to the open container loophole for frozen alcohol being sold in a closed container, he said, well, I did it for my friends, said it to the media and left it out there. He was kind of old by the time too. So what they gonna do, you know? The league ended up accomplishing a number of its goals. Uh, things like keeping can and bottle redemption via five cent deposit down. He managed to convince the government that it would actually cost the beer and liquor companies too much to redeem that recycling fee. And they'll they'll end up leaving Louisiana. So, so knowing that he championed the frozen liquid in a sealed container loophole doesn't surprise anyone, I think, yeah. No, and it doesn't surprise me that politicians are trying to get whatever money they can out of it. Oh, that's not, he, he's got a good idea there. We gotta figure out how to get as much money off that. Yeah, who's a lobbyist group that's coming to push this through? I'd like to talk to him uh, real quick. What flavors they had. Yeah. I, I actually know he had 15 flavors going by the time he was six months in, all selling it out of what looked like a snowball shack. His most popular were Okay, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess. Margarita. Pina colada. Strawberry. Strawberry. Oh, strawberry colada. White Russian. Victoria's Secret. 
White Russian. Okay, so strawberry, white Russian. White Russian's the way to go. There's just, they gave me the top three. Top so three. strawberry, okay. white Russian. Oh, and? Like... No. Mm. It is a drink, though. It's not margarita? Mm-mm. The 190 octane? No, this was back in the set, the 80s. <laughs> oh, this was when it first came out? Yeah. yeah. It's a Close. drink. Perfect. I mean, I guess. Old fashioned? Uh, Rum and Coke. Uh-uh. Jack and Coke. Uh-uh. I give up. You guys are close. It's a whiskey sour. Oh, okay. Yeah, All that's right, why I was right, trying right, to right. think, like, does a Sazerac really count? Is. Sazerac doesn't count. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what are your favorite daiquiri flavors? Because I can't have a lot of sugar and alcohol together. It makes me ugly, ugly. Margarita is my, yeah, mm -hmm. all the way, every day. So your downfall in your muse? Yeah, yeah. I'm the big. I'm, yeah, it's John Legend. Yeah. I like 190 oh, octane. You like 190 octane? Uh, yeah, because I'm not a big sugar. I'd rather just taste the liquor and yeah. roll with it. I like 190 octane plus pina colada. That's the mix you get when you're dating the daiquiri bartender. So you want to know? Yeah. Did you work at yes. Port Allen too? I did. Yes, yes. Cliff and I worked at a daiquiri bar in Port Allen in our uh, heyday. And Delirious is now moving. We'll give a shout out to Delirious Daiquiri. Whoa. They're getting kicked out of their spot and they're moving to where French Quarter Daiquiri is right down the street on Highway 1. So oh. if you're in Port Allen, uh, visit Nene and Jeffrey and- uh, Was it a traffic citation issue? It was not a, <laughs> it was not a traffic citation issue. Uh, but it was a, uh, a leasing issue of some sort. So oh, wow. They're, they're after the traffic 2021. Yeah, leasing is the traffic. <laughs> Long live delirium. Yeah. So delirious. did you guys live in yes. Port Allen yeah. or did y'all drive? We, we drove. drove. We drove. You cross, drove. Ooh, you crossed that bridge every day. Yeah, it was fun. It was easy. We knew to leave four hours early for work. Right, yeah. right. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Where's the construction today? <laughs> yeah. Right. I found the mayor. Uh, during that time. Oh, who's the mayor during that time? I'm gonna tell you his name and I want you to guess his nickname because they always, all these guys have quotes. Yeah. William Dudley Lestraps Jr. was the mayor of Lafayette who was getting angry. Duds. Move the S. Dud. Stud. Just dud. Dud? <laughs> dud. Of course Why it was. Why would you call yourself mayor dud? He was such a dud, he didn't want the daiquiris. He couldn't, uh, yeah, he wanted his cut. That's what it is. Oof, he probably. was missing out on a bunch of revenue, and that's the problem. It's just, how can we figure out how to put an ordinance into where he can't do this? And then he's gonna have to pay his taxes on blah, blah, blah. That, that's, mm. it is, it is what it is. But I like that, you know, David was just having like a Cinco de Mayo, like every weekend. He's like, free champagne. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, he's in Lafayette handing out free champagne in the, you know, in he, the 80s. He, he probably was like, did it, like you said, he did it with his friends and then it like just snowballed. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he's just like, whoa, I don't have, like one night he's probably like, I don't, look, I don't have enough. Like I'm out. Yeah. And then it was like, man, I got to do something about this. And then, yeah, and, and thankfully his League of Beers new yeah. friend was like, he walked in one day, you think he's like Boss Hog, like, hey, excuse me, I'd like to speak to the owner yeah. of this. I'm with the League of Beers. <laughs> You're like, Who here owns this? <laughs> you know, I have yet to see a whiskey sour dacker. Never. I feel like I've seen I feel it. Like it died out. You seen it? I feel like I've seen it. There's some. But I also yeah. feel like I've been in a daiquiri shop in Covington. Bring you know, it back. By the movie theater. <laughs> yeah. Like, right? That one? Yeah. That one probably had it. Yeah. Oof. 
So that's David's story? That's David's story. And does it still have a drive-through in the Black Pearl? Yeah, yeah, it, and it opened in 1983, so right after David. Oh. Because once he was, once he got away with it, it blew up everywhere. Oh. Like everyone was like, duh. Lynn, what happened to David, you know, once everybody else started to pick up on this drive-through daiquiri shop issue? I think he did fine. I didn't really read anything bad about him. Right. It was more like he did this. It wasn't look where he ended up. Got you, got you. So like his grandchildren, grandchildren gonna be taken care of. I'm sure. Well, hats off to Dave. Yeah, good for Dave. You know, just too bad he didn't get a not a what is it? Not a copyright, a patent. Yeah, a patent on that. Mm. Some old daiquiri money. And now they have <laughs> liquor store, drive-through shops. Well, I think that's the, in North Louisiana. The drive-through thing. If I'm Mrs. Biff, can stand. I think they just passed in Houston to allow it. Yeah, oh. well, to go drinks, not. Oh, to go drinks. I'm thinking it's going to evolve into, yes. it will be a drive-through. Well, but we'll all be in driverless says, vehicles anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? Correct. There we go. Cameras for Google, one's for Apple, and one's for CBS. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, how much? So, y'all think they really listen to us? I think they can. I don't yeah, think that someone is listening can. to me all the time, but playing? at any point they can. No, I didn't see this on news last night. We're playing tennis last night. I look up, I thought it was birds. It looked like drones, just all in kind of unison, just going towards the lake. It was really weird. It looked like slow motion. It looked like drones, but it was weird because they looked higher than, I know some drones can go higher than others, but it just looked higher than whatever. But it was probably, it was aliens. Let's be honest, guys. Guys, they're, they're coming. <laughs> Mrs. Biff, all right, you were there. Are the aliens coming? She saw it. But what was up in there, if you were a guesser? I have no idea, but it did not look like aliens. But didn't yes. the government just come out and say, or the military yeah, right. just came out and said, yeah. That yeah, but people would say when they see UFOs, they like zip around and change direction and stuff. They were just like floating. She says that, but then she got into bed wearing a tinfoil hat last night. <laughs> so don't trust her. I think you just misread the signals. That's all. Oh, we were supposed That's to play space. That's not what I was space. getting at. <laughs> There's a weird space thing going on. Oh, God, I misread. I'm sorry. There was like... 20 of them. Oh, you can't be certain whoa. it wasn't aliens. You can't be certain. It was either aliens or Russia. We can't be certain that any of us aren't aliens right now. Yeah. We can be certain if it was Russia that there would have been yeah. fighter pilots behind them from the base yeah. across the river. Not with hackers. What if it was like one of those shows like The Americans? Oh, I stare at my neighbors every day. I go, I walk in my front door, I look at my neighbors. I think we're about to find out if the FBI is actually listening to us. Yeah, they subscribe. They listen to every episode. I'd love it. That's what the next FBI podcast is going to be about, this brackish podcast. Let's mix it up. Yeah. All right, so I'm doing the story of Mahalia Jackson. Her uh, 
her she grew up in the Black Pearl neighborhood. It was short lived for about till she was a teenager, like sixteen. But it's still relevant to this. So she grew up in the Black Pearl neighborhood on Pitt Street. Uh, she was born in 1911, and she shared a home with 13 family members. So it was a lot of cousins and aunts and her, her brother, her mom, and her dad. Um, she was born Mahala Jackson, named after her aunt. Um, later, it doesn't really say what year, but she changed, legally changed the spelling of her name and added the I to it. Not really sure why, but... Judge. Yeah. <laughs> she grew up on Pitt Street, like I said, with uh, 13 people and a dog. And her mother, Charity Clark, worked as a maid and a laundress. Um, and her dad was a dockhand and a barber who later became a Baptist minister. Um, when she was born, she suffered from Genu Verum. Mrs. Biff knows about that. What is that? What is that? If you're knock-kneed, then your knees go inward. Genu is like the Latin word for knee. So genu valgum is when you're knock-kneed. Genu verum is when you're bow-legged or your knees go out. But it's actually a normal part of child development that they used to worry someone over that. Which I guess her family, when a doctor said, I want to perform surgery on your legs, uh, one of the aunts was like, no. And so the aunt proceeded to rub her legs every day with greasy dishwater, thinking that that would cure the condition. Did it? it ne <laughs> no, it never stopped. And But she, it never kept Mahalia from whoever her mom cleaned for and her aunt and her mom. So, like, she would go along with her mom. Freaking crows. What's no. up, crow? It's the FBI. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. What's happening with you? Did you say something you weren't supposed to? I did. Yeah, I feel like the like, no, no, no. Yeah, no, it's like yeah, no. yeah. You did. Her aunts were rubbing her legs down with grease. It didn't really work, obviously. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> she, uh, she was. She continued to do dancing for the like. She was her mom. You didn't talk to that crow. Huh? You didn't talk to the crow. The crow is talking to you. Look at him. 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 He's at the pole. Oh, I can't. I can't see him. He's gone. She was young at this time, so she would go to wherever her mom, whoever mom was cleaning the house somewhere with her aunt. She'd go and dance for whoever was cleaning the house and the person's house. They, she would just dance for them. That's what she did at a young age. Uh, but when she was five, her mother passed away and her family was trying to decide who was going to raise her and her brother. And her aunt Duke said she would take the responsibility, but she made the children work sun up, sun down. And her aunt Duke would always inspect the house using this, using the white glove method. So she would scrape everything and see if, and if, any, if there was any dirt, Mahalia was beaten. I don't know if she was the only one that was beaten, but um, she was beaten. And then if anybody was unable to do the other chores or clean their job, Haley or the other cousins would have to do the task as well. So as you can imagine, she was doing this sun up, sun down. And then she didn't really have any time to like, even if she went to school, didn't have time to do anything after school, homework. So 
But what she loved to do was to sing in church, and she began her singing career at the local Mount Moriah Baptist Church, which is still there. And she was baptized in the Mississippi River. Right over there. I don't know how tall, how high the levees were when she was baptized in 19, probably in the 1920s. I know they're really tall now, but it, it may have been easy. Slope? Huh? It wasn't a three to one slope? It was a three to one slope, but okay. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, man, I'm not that tall. That I would just want. I, I wouldn't get in the Mississippi. That's just right. the flooded part where if the snakes are. If your church is on the Mississippi, the, yeah, not the massive current. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So some some of her earliest influences were the sights and sounds of Uptown New Orleans, the steamships on the Mississippi River, Audubon Park, and jazz bands throughout the city. And at the age of twelve, her aunt who was putting her through this rigorous workload, <laughs> said, you're going to be famous in this world and walk amongst kings and queens. And the aunt was right. So at 16, uh, she moved to Chicago. So that's what I said. She grew up in the Black Pearl till 16, moved to Chicago. I think uh, it must have been, I didn't read anything, but the aunt must have been like, your voice is too good. You, I mean, you need to go somewhere and do something with this. So she moved to Chicago. She joined the Greater Salem Baptist Church and began touring with the Johnson Brothers, which was Chicago's first professional gospel group. And during those first years in Chicago, she was unable to find work. So she would basically sing outside of shops, sing on the street and make money that way. Put out a whatever you, you know, to make money. And, um... What she did after that, somebody heard her and she put out a hit. She recorded Moving On Up a Little Higher and that sold one million copies in 1945. So she was 34, it took her that long. When she, she kept doing, she was doing singing with the gospel group, did the stuff on the street on the side to make money, make ends meet. And then once she got big enough, recorded, an, recorded a song in 1945, and then after that, she began to just tour United States and then eventually Europe. Could you imagine just singing on the street to live? You're like, I hope I'm good, better than good, <laughs> to Gadley's boss, something neat, you know? She's doing this during a pretty rough economic time, oh, yeah. too. It's not like people are throwing dollar bills in, in the hat. She's doing this after World War One the Great Depression, and then during World War II. So, but she's she's touring with the gospel group, I think not knowing that how big that would get, and then making, I, I don't know how much money, didn't say how much money she was making there, but then also doing on the side just to live in Chicago. Making more um, than what she makes singing in church? Yeah. In 1950, uh, she was the first gospel singer to perform at Carnegie Hall. And she began to tour in Europe. And her first big popular song in Europe was Silent Night. At that point, Silent Night was one of the all-time best-selling records in Denmark. I don't know if it still is or whatever, but anyway. Fact check it. Yeah, fact check me. Uh, 
So by 1960, after going in Europe and, and she was an international gospel star, and then she just basically told, she vowed that she would, that's all she would sing. That's it. She wouldn't convert to any pop or whatever, just gospel. 1960, she was an early supporter of the civil rights movement, especially when she, she received violent threats from neighbors who didn't want an African-American woman living in their Chicago street suburban street um, where she purchased a home. So she was dealing with that all through her life as well in Chicago. And with that, she was invited to perform. She became friends with Martin Luther King and she was invited to perform at, uh, for the great March, which preceded his Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech. And um, the crazy part is, is that she agreed to do it but she was taking a train from Chicago. And despite all these hecklers and Klansmen, she arrived in Montgomery, Alabama, where she was greeted by Martin Luther King uh, for that. Uh, appearance? So it's pretty crazy. Yeah, appearance, yeah. Yeah. So she sang for him. Promotion? For that. Yeah. Almost? Yeah. Um, but tragically, she passed away at the age of 60 in 1972. Um, but the, fun the funeral was held at the Airy Crown Theater, which is still in Chicago today, where singers like Sammy Davis Jr., Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald, Lou Rawls, and Dick Gregory attended. And um, so through all that, Mahalia was one of the most influential gospel singers in the world. And like I said, she was deemed the first queen of gospel, and she recorded about... 30 albums in her career and if anybody's in new orleans you know or around new orleans you know the mahalia jackson theater there's countless uh acts that go on there there's concerts and then uh recently after katrina roadway broadway i don't know what do you call that the broadway on the yeah yeah they that's where all the plays are now so Broadway brings their road Broadway plays to the Mahalia Jackson Center as well, and the Sanger as well. But Mahalia is one of the places that they started after after it was renovated in 2009. So, yeah. Cool deal. Little New Orleans baby. What she moved out, but, you know. What was your favorite song? Did you? Mahalia Jackson? Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit, who's not a Silent Night fan? Big gospel guy. Why not? How did she sing it? What? I'm not gonna sing it. <laughs> how, if you could sing it like her. How about if you could sing it, how would you sing it? I'm not gonna mimic, you trying to me, I can't mimic the one of the, the queen of gospel, good Lord. The first queen before, you know, Aretha came along. I ain't you said you were going to try. You said you were going to try to be the last queen. You said you were going to try to be the last queen. I didn't say I was going to try to be the last queen tonight. You can't be the last queen by trying to be the first queen. Got to make his own path. Yeah. Let me get on uh, the voice first and then we'll figure it out. You might want to be on the mass Singer, baby. Are you trying to say I'm ugly? Maybe.
So asking asking anybody to to say what their favorite song of hers is is asking anybody what a gospel track is because she didn't do anything. She didn't make her own. She just sang songs from the church. So she never left. Never left, never lost. Oh, I got over. How did I make it over? You know my soul back in wonder. How did I make it over? How I made it over. How much does one make in church? Not. Yeah, let's let's bring it back. Like, okay, I so I bring it back. Like, like, why did Whitney? Why did Aretha? Why like? How much does well Aretha's dad it? was a pastor. Okay, but how much they got out of the church? How much does someone make in church? They do people not make much in the church in gospel? You don't make anything unless you tour and get paid for touring. You don't make anything singing I mean, at your same church. I mean, there's some big churches that do pay people, yeah. Because it's, oh, they're, they're like, like okay. scouts coming. Well, maybe time. Well, my sister's church in Manhattan, they have people who are from Broadway that sing in the choir. I don't know if they make money from the choir, but they come in just to keep their voices up. And I want to thank him by Broadway. And I want to thank God Well, you have to think about aliens, too. They get the radio signals from how long ago, right? So when they get closer, they're probably getting signals from, who knows, 1950s, 19 whatever. They probably come down here and be like, start trying to have a conversation with a horse. Yeah. We're like, well, Mr. Ed was having a conversation. How do you know they can't talk to the horse? How do you know the horse can't talk to the alien? Horses maybe? How do we know that horses aren't aliens? <gasps> Don't do that, Lynn. Don't do that. We've seen horses. We've aliens been up close to the horses. That's kind of language. Because if they were aliens, they wouldn't let humans ride. Yeah, they okay. wouldn't do that. If we just say the word cavalry, we're like, oh, some horses are going to die. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. But <laughs> first I thing do, I, I would think, think of is why is there a cavalry in 2021? Exactly. What the hell is so, going on? But that's what I think. That's what we've come to know horses. Hey, are you a horse advocate? You're not a UFO. You would be, you would be an alien if you'd be like, yo, what do you I'm not think the cavalry anymore, guys. Pegasus, Pegasi were. Look, we're going to infiltrate America, but you can't win the Triple Crown. You can only win the first two races. It doesn't look like you're this supernatural horse. You're just a regular horse that couldn't win the last race. And that way, and then they get, what they really do is they kill off the horses that went all three. They're like, you went too far, you won all three races, you triple crown asshole, and then they just- Anybody seen Secretariat? No. I thought they put Go them on. out to stud. Zoom I thought those guys up. were tired and just got to- No, they beam them back up and all day. into space. Fart them back into space. <laughs> You're saying that horses are aliens. Yeah. <laughs>
There's, there's a, there's all, all the Triple Crown winners are just floating in space somewhere. What about mules? <laughs> Don't get them started on mules. Don't get me started on mules. <laughs> 50 years from now, we're going to see a news broadcast and be like, we have satellite imagery. There's going to be fucking Secretariat floating in space. And we're like, damn it, we knew it. This is where the FBI stops listening. <laughs> no, they're listening. They're like, these guys are onto us. How do they know? This podcast is supported by Lee's Grain Free. Lee's Grain Free brings convenience, affordability, and accessibility to the specialty baking category by introducing the first ever Paleo Cookie Mix Kit. I don't know what that is. It's a baking kit that contains a dry mix, liquid mix, toppings, and parchment paper. Ooh, that's a lot. Each of Lee's Grain Free's creative mix kits, from orange ginger to mocha to tahini chip, Lynn, that's all you, is full of wholesome ingredients that offer you a healthier alternative to your standard dessert without sacrificing flavor. Find Lee's Grain Free on her website. <laughs> Lee'sGrainFree.com. You tired? Are you struggling to find focus? Yeah. Achy joints? Oof. Grind is a revolutionary, great tasting formula that pushes you to your max potential. Grind helps focus you and gives you clarity while helping preserve your joints. Most pre-workout and energy drinks contain additives like creatine, which can bulk you up and add water weight. Grind doesn't believe in fluff. So it's like a energy powder, so, but it doesn't have all the extra fluff with it. And it okay. keeps you going throughout your day. It's a get you right. It's a get you right. Okay. So, good sponsor for us. If you want to know more, they got a Facebook page. They got a website, hitthegrind.com. Um, so, it's cool. We're good friends with them. Uh, so, we're just, it's people helping people out. And we don't see know? anything wrong with a little powder. I don't grind. see anything wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a little bit of powder. Oh, just a little bit. A <laughs> little bit of powder. Ooh. All right, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to tell you about a guy. Uh, his story has to deal with golf, but he's also got ice cream. Who doesn't like that? Okay. Heck yeah. Okay. Uh, some life insurance. Multifaceted individual. Yeah. I like it. And then one time, uh, these, these people gave him a boatload of money and they said, hey man, we trust you. And like, we're sending you to New York. You better come back here. What would you do? If someone gave me a boatload of money boatload and told me money. to come back and design a golf course, I'd take the money and go to Spain. coast well uh, now you told obviously. us what we would do so we could find you if you just and golf yeah on a course that i didn't build <laughs> but i'd enjoy every minute so you did love to golf you I love just, to golf yeah, i would take the money though. so you would want to go play on the best golf courses ever yeah but and if you, you took the money you couldn't go to the best golf courses ever because everyone would know who you are 
at the best golf courses ever. All right. So if you built the Conundrum. best if you built the best golf courses ever, would you want to play at them? Of course. Yes. This dude didn't get to do that. He built it. And what? then these dudes who made him build it looked at him in the face and was like, yo, you All can't right. play here. Tell me the story. Let's go. This is Joseph Bartholomew. He's born on August 1st, 1880. He's born in the Black Pearl. And he was an ambitious young dude. One time he asked his teacher, hey, this school's all right, but can I, can I take two grades at the same time and get so forth? And his teacher said, yeah, you can. He said, so I went and I skipped. That's what he told the Sports Illustrated. So at the age of seven, while he was in school, he was caddying at the Audubon Club, which is really adjacent, well, a neighborhood that's close to adjacent, of the Black Pearl. So at eighth grade, he dropped out of school and he was a full-time caddy at this whites-only golf club in New Orleans. So pros liked when Joseph would caddy for him. They were like, give me Joseph. I've never lost my ball when I'm hanging out with Joseph. Sounds like he's a big foot wedge guy. <laughs> like, oh, you lost your ball? He has one in his pocket throat. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I shot a cat. No, no, you shot the title over there. It's right there. Uh, while he was caddying, he was earning $3 a day. And this is in the 1890s that so he's earning this money. One day, the Ottoman Club professional says, like, Joseph, I can teach you how to repair golf clubs and, you know, like, teach people how to swing, how to play golf, and how to know golf. And this guy's name was Freddie McCloyd, and he was the winner of the 1908 United States Open. All right, so he offered Joseph a job, and, but he said, man, you're only gonna make 50 cents a day instead of $3 a day. Joseph got to play at this golf course mm -hmm. over time, at this Audubon golf course, and he would play against other, like, very good, seasoned touring pros, and the, the members would put money on Joseph to beat him. And he, he shot a 62 at the Audubon. It was like an eight under or six, I don't even know. But 62 at a golf course is really good. Could not find anything about, you know, Joseph Bartholomew versus someone in a golf match. No one ever like uh, oh, I'm sure. said that. I could not find anything about that. So Bartholomew worked for decades at the Ottoman Club course and learned from McCoy. And by the end of it, he was making $2 per lesson and he was doing about 12 lessons a day. And then one day, one day he became the Greens superintendent. So he's like mowing the grass. I know how I need to like dig here, put some land here, put some sod, make this. Oh, you want to make this a pond? I'll make you a pond, man. I, yeah, make, it, make it difficult. Do we, will, have we don't have gophers in Louisiana. I will a raccoon if you guys need me to. Rats, nutria, yes. Get rid of the yeah, nutria. Get rid of the nutria. Yes. <laughs> You're right, man. There probably were a ton of rats. Like, at the Ottoman Club, he was the greenskeeper. Uh, he was Bill Murray in Caddyshack, is what you're telling everyone in the audience. But he shot really good at golf. No, he was... Well, Bill Murray was a Cinderella boy. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess. As he, as he lines up this last shot, he's got about 195 yards left, and he's going to... 
Looks like he's got about an eight on him. <laughs> I don't. No, no. Joseph Bartholomew was not like Bill Murray in Caddyshack. He was Bill Murray up until the golf game. No. He was he was the greenskeeper. He got he chased the gophers no. and or rats. No. Now that Joseph is working at the Audubon Club and the Audubon Club is becoming more and more like public and people of color are coming to the Audubon Club, checking Joseph out. These now white members at the Audubon Club, a, a bunch of them like get together these men are obviously racist. And they're like, guys, we need a private club again. This stuff ain't cool. Oh, they didn't like the other people uh, coming in. They didn't like the other people oh, coming in. Oh, huffy puffy. Yeah. And these guys made, I'm sorry to say it, but they made the Metairie Country Club. That's what it says on the website of the Metairie Country Club. In 1922, a group of New Orleans formed a real estate development corporation and obtained a 130-acre large tract of land just over the parish line on Metairie Ridge, which was considered prime location. You've oh, seen it today it off of Veterans. You still see it today. Yeah. That's the Metairie Country Club. Yeah, it used to be the Metairie Canal. We've talked about this before. We have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't see it off veterans. No, airline. 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 Sorry. No, I'm so sorry. When you drive it out, airline. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You Mr. can kind of see it because it's very cut. It's uh, it, There's either bushes or there's just well, a big. Yeah, no, because they don't want lately, golf balls going into the airline. They, they're doing work over there. Hey, so guess yes. why? You're about to know why. Oh. Still to this day, the story's current oh. due to Joseph Bartholomew. So still, this is what it says on the website of the Metairie Country Club. Because of crowded conditions on other courses <gasps> and the need for another golf club, they organized the Metairie Golf Club. Spearheading the formation of the club were a number of officers and directors of the Audubon Golf Club. Their interest stemmed from agitation to make the course public, and they wanted a strictly private championship golf course. I don't know if they get any credit for putting that up either, because they didn't exactly say what was happening. They kind of, kind of a lot of skirted around. Right. Agitation at crowding is. Listen to what they did. Listen is to what the weak vocabulary. Listen to what the Metairie Country Club did. They were like, shit. We need somebody to build this fucking golf course. <gasps> they did not get Joseph Bartholomew to design the golf course that they no, they are didn't building to, to avoid Oh my him. God, would they give him credit for designing it? I think not. Hold on, Lynn. They were like, Joe, this guy named H.T. Cottom, all right? I don't like this guy already. His yeah. name is H.T. Cottom. He was, he was on the new Metairie Golf Course membership. And he was like, hey, Guys, let's get Joseph a buttload of money, send him to New York. There's that guy that's been designing golf courses yep. from something, whatever. His name's Seth Raynar. Send him up to New York, send Joseph with a boatload of money, learn from Seth, and then Joseph come back down, build this beautiful golf course. You yeah, said I mean, what you would have done earlier. Oh, take the money and run. Oh, I would be on the coast of Spain. 
these Metairie people would be staring at a patch of grass. I don't know what Knock would do. What would Knock do? Oh, coast of Spain. Coast of Spain. So we're all on the coast of Spain. (laughs) Just so we're all clear. (laughs) Yeah. Oh Oh my gosh. Looking at the sun. Yes. And saffron. This is a quote to Fortune magazine in 1949. They gave me a whole bunch of money and told me to go and find the best course in the world and bring it back. Went and learned from Seth Raynar, a Southampton engineer who built over 100 courses. Bartholomew left in 1921, 22, early. And he returned in 1922, still that year. The 130-acre tract of land, it was pure wilderness. Oh, yeah, they yeah. Nothing there at all. Except mosquitoes. If you build it, they will come. I mean, we learned that. And so Joseph came back and he had these little, like, plastic scales of, like, what it was going to look like. And Oh, models. Yeah, he had little models he came back with. So he was able to, like, show them, like, yo, this is what it is. And these dudes put up a boatload of money. They're like, Joseph. Build it. Build it, dude. Build it. It was like the best American holes and Scottish holes. Okay. What? Phrasing. Right? Golf courses have holes. No, I'm aware. I just wasn't sure if you were aware what holes you were talking about. It was probably the same dudes in my story about Metairie who were out, who did all the dirty work out in Metairie because they didn't they left the wives in New Orleans and they went out to Metairie in these little... Oh, and the hookers were in Metairie. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same guys who were winning the money gambling and they were like, we're going to do this golf course right. Right. We're going to do a real we're right. We're going to do a real right. And we're going to send Joseph to do it. Yeah. And we're not going to give him any credit, which I think is complete horseshit. So he came back. He came back. He had the plastic same bottles. Same year. Like, Shows him everything. He's building it. And he would work overnight because he was worried that people would steal his like project ideas. Oh, wow. All right, so it was taking him a while to do this. And these racist members were getting pissed. Like, Joseph, taking you some time. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to build y'all the best golf course ever. What do you want? What do you want? And so they were like, show us. And so like he one day picked him up on a Sunday all right, put him in a wagon on a horse and buggy, and they went out to the golf course. And all these white members were like, Joseph. Dude, are you serious? Like, look how beautiful this is, Joseph. Oh my God, Joseph, you built the most beautiful golf course in the whole world. And these, like, they love these little Scottish holes that are long, I'm serious, lengths. That's what they really enjoyed about this course. (laughs) Thank you, Grub. (laughs) They were so happy that they said, Joseph, we appreciate you building this most beautiful 18 holes we ever seen, man. Thank you, we appreciate it. You're gonna be the first professional golf pro here. So in the 1920s, Joseph was named the club professional. Joseph's like, thank you guys, I appreciate it. I'm gonna go knock me some 18. And they were like, no, Joseph, you still can't play. You can just like teach people how to play. That's cold. That's real cold. 
and he never got to play on it. Never got to play on it. Never got to play on it. So is this course like widely considered a great course? Yep, because several years later, different tournaments were held there, such as the True Temper Open and the New Orleans Open, where great golfers like Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, and Ben Hogan showed up and played. Till this day, it is one of the like greatest courses. And because to this day, it's still considered, that's why they're doing construction. They're trying to say, look, we're going to get back to the old Bartholomew way. So they've done things that like took away from what he did and they're trying to bring it back to his vision. Right. That's why you see all that like tearing up of stuff on airline highway right now. Are they giving him credit? I don't know. Are they? Any of it? I don't I would have to say I didn't know about any of this until you told me, so no. I have no clue. Yeah. Wow. They're giving credit. They're giving credit. Are they? They are. They are. Um, on the website of the um, the Metairie Country Club, it says that the course was designed by Seth Raynar, then built by Joseph Bartholomew. And some people think that like that's shit on Joseph Bartholomew because like as he was there learning from Seth Raynar, I'm sure that somewhere former shape Joseph Bartholomew was like. What if we did this? Yeah. And that might have happened. Wow, that is insane. Did he work anywhere else? Did he design other courses? So in 1933, he designs City Park number one, and then he designs City Park number two uh, with the help of landscape architecture William Wardham. But and designs, like definitely did the design. He helped, yes, he helps design. They he's didn't just now. say built. No, they didn't okay. just say built. And now he's designed, but with the help mm -hmm. of landscape architecture, William Warner. Joseph did have a lot of luck when he built a seven hole golf course in Harahan that was only for African-Americans. And so that's where he made a good bit of money in Harahan when he built his first uh, private club for blacks only right and so then after this he started doing that renting of the equipment okay and then he started building and getting city contracts and office contracts and he started building office buildings and then in 1940 he invested in frederick douglas uh life insurance it was losing money but then nine years later it was thriving because it was in the building that bartholomew had already bought and headquartered, so he'd already made money on top of it. And then he built an ice cream plant in 1949. What? For $75,000, he bought and built an ice cream plant, and he was raking in profits from this ice cream plant. In the yes. 40s? Yes. Yeah, because after soldiers came back from the war, they were all like in love with ice cream. It was Americana. Good. Then yeah. Bartholomew turned his uh, attention to real estate. He got partnered in with this real estate investment with this guy. And then they just revamped the land with drainage, improvements, whatever. They sold it for 10 times what they paid for it. He said that he rarely saw a risk that wasn't worth taking. He told Fortune magazine he believed that that had been the keys to his success. He had contributions to Dillard and Xavier Universities, fixture of Pontchartrain Park until his 70s, 
And then in 1971, he had a stroke and he died. And then after his death in 1972, he was inducted to the Greater New Orleans Sports Hall of Fame. And in 1979, after his death again, Pontchartrain Park was named after him, Joseph Bartholomew Senior Park. They still have a statue there of him today. He also designed and constructed courses in Covington, Hammond, Abiz Springs, Algiers, Baton Rouge, and as well as one course in Mississippi. All right, and I told you about that memory course being under renovation right now, and they say it's back to the Raynard design, but back to the Bartholomew. Bartholomew had built. Wow, so he Modern just built course. everything yeah. in the course. Southeast. Uh, tons of golf courses, yes. Wow. Good for him. And he was the best. But he never got to play at those courses that he built. I'm sure he played those dudes. And I'm sure he beat the shit you out of them. You think he had to sneak up? No, I mean, I don't know if he played the course, but I'm sure he was like, you know what, you won't let me play here? Why don't we play on this one? He unless, had to play before they got there, too. Yeah, somebody stuck around him. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. But I'm saying, I'm sure after the fact, he's like, all right, y'all, well, y'all gonna... You're gonna shaft me and do this. Well, why don't you come play me on this one? Let's see what's going on. We're talking Happy Gilmore stuff? Yeah, he said meet him at the ninth green at nine. Just stay out of my way or you'll pay. Listen to what I say. How about I just go eat some hay? I can make things out of clay and lay by the bay. I just may. What do you say? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna say this is for sure, but every time I've I do a lot of work over there in Pontchartrain Park. Seems to me that it's always called on Google Pontchartrain Park. It's not called Joseph Bartholomew Park. So that's what I'm interested to see if like you, I mean, obviously his statue's still there and they call it that, but it's mm-hmm. interesting that it's not referred to that online. What if we Google Google about their Google and told them that they need to switch their Google Maps according to what we've mapped in our Google research, what if we get paid? We should we Ooh. should do we should act like Joe and get paid for this kind of. Y'all, it's like Google isn't taking your ideas right now. <laughs> That's very true. They've already changed it. I might need to actually <laughs> drink a daiquiri before y'all start googling Google. Has anyone ever tried to send a Gmail to Google? Like an what's ad, Google's like the headquarters? Gmail address? Is what it is Google it? at Google Gmail? <laughs> it's gotta be. Just customer service at gmail.com. So crazy. We got Bartholomew over here just designing golf courses. Crazy. We got Mahalia Jackson and we got some drive through daiquiris. All famous. And all in, I mean, I don't even, I wish I knew the square footage or the, uh, this tiny little neighborhood. It's not big. When you talk about neighborhoods, it's not that big of a neighborhood. Mm-mm. And it's right butt up against the Mississippi River, yeah. too. Pretty crazy. This has been the Brackish Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. No, no. not SoundCloud. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you should probably Maybe. try. <laughs> I'm looking at the guy who does it, y'all. He is. No, I'm not. We don't run on SoundCloud at all. <laughs> no. Unless you want to drop some sick beats. We could do that. Yeah, I think that's what SoundCloud is. Well, We'd love good. to hear from you. We'd love to know if there's mm-hmm. something you're curious about as far as New Orleans or Louisiana history is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're always looking. So. Yeah. 
But until then, we'll see you next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. See you definitely next Tuesday.